the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. So my name is Hen. I am non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. I am a revolutionary communist. I am an abolitionist. I am a restaurant worker. And I've also been living with metastatic papillary thyroid cancer for about nine years now. I'm originally from Colorado. I live in Vermont now. And um, I think that my experience with cancer has been kind of the primary driver for my radicalization. So I'm going to share that story with you today. So I was diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer when I was 18 years old during the first couple of weeks of my freshman year of college. I noticed a lump and I was very nervous about like health-related things at the time. So anytime I noticed something, I would try to get into a doctor if I could. My parents were both teachers, so they had health insurance. And so I was lucky enough to be able to get things checked out when I needed to. And I went in to see a doctor. I had my neck examined and almost immediately the doctor was like, okay, you need to get an ultrasound done. So I was, I I believe it was the same day I went and had an ultrasound done on my neck. After that, I had a biopsy. I think it's important to note that these were all in different facilities. I had to be driven to different facilities. I was lucky enough to have reliable transportation for this diagnosis process. And within about, I believe it was within like three days, I had a diagnosis of papillary thyroid cancer. Um, I had a biopsy done and the biopsy results came back positive. When I was diagnosed, I was working at Starbucks. I was literally on the clock working the Starbucks drive-through when I received a call from my dad. I was on my 15 minute break. I got a call from my dad and he had gotten the results of my biopsy and he just said, just so you know, like your biopsy results came back positive for cancer. And we were understaffed that night. (laughs) So I had to finish my shift. I worked four hours in the Starbucks drive-thru after receiving a cancer diagnosis because I was unable to go home. And I think part of this is because thyroid cancer I think a lot of people are familiar with thyroid cancer because it's, it's, it's a pretty common type of cancer and it's typically very treatable. My case is an exception and I'm going to go into more detail regarding that. But during the initial few weeks of my diagnosis, I was definitely met with like a lot of reassurance, like, oh, that's, that's, it's like called the easy cancer. People like describe it as like not a big deal. So I think that was part of why the response from <laughs> my uh, manager was like, okay, that sucks. Can you get back on drive for like a couple more hours and you can go home? Really horrible. Really, really awful. I was given like no, no reassurance and no like immediate comfort from the people around me because I was in a fast food establishment and like anyone who's worked in a fast food establishment knows that it's like incredibly dehumanizing 
And like, even though you're working with a crew of other people, there's not really like a real human connection there. Like your priority is just like getting food or drinks out to the customer and you have no time at all to like be human. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was given no time to process that initial diagnosis. During those first few weeks, I had a surgery scheduled that's usually the process of treating thyroid cancer. Typically, it involves at least the process for treating papillary thyroid cancer. There are four types, and papillary is typically like the most treatable. It usually involves a surgery, and then surgery is often, not always, but often followed up with a radioactive iodine treatment. I was scheduled for surgery. I had... <laughs> I had my surgery on a Thursday and I was back in class on Monday morning for a chemistry exam. And that was also like a very stressful part of my treatment process. I was working almost full time. I was trying to maintain a full time schedule as a student that didn't last. Um, I went part time after that first surgery, which I think is good. I think I think many people who deal with chronic illness feel and this is something I'm still kind of investigating within myself. But I think many people who deal with chronic illness or disability are made to feel as if they need to perform in the exact same way that able-bodied people do. And I, I mean, I, all, all of the systems that we are made to operate within on a day-to-day -day basis are completely inaccessible to people who aren't neurotypical, able-bodied, not chronically ill. That is a reality that I am every single day becoming more and more aware of, even nine years into this experience. I did go part-time. After my first surgery, I didn't really hear from my surgeon. It was very strange. I didn't really get an update. I understood that the treatment process usually involves a radioactive iodine treatment after my surgery. I didn't receive any referral for that. I was a little bit confused, but at this point in time, I had a lot of trust in the healthcare system. I had a lot of trust in doctors. I had a lot of trust that they would do the right thing and that they would communicate with me if there was something that I needed to do. So I ended up waiting. I think I waited about two months, not hearing anything, not hearing, not, with no follow-up. I think I had an appointment to get like some stitches removed, but it, I didn't have an appointment with my surgeon. And eventually... I can't remember if I was the one who, who initiated this conversation or if it was the surgeon's office, but I eventually got in contact with my surgeon. And I just remember him saying, you haven't done your radioactive iodine treatment yet? Like asking, like as if it was, I was 18. I was 18 years old. And I, I just remember this medical professional, I don't know who it was, my surgeon or some other medical professional, placing the blame on me. Like, you haven't done this yet? Uh, you really need to. Your cancer is very extensive. And that was the first that I had heard that. I, I didn't know that my cancer was more extensive than um, just my thyroid. I believe that when I had had my thyroid removed, I had had my cancer removed. And um, then I was told, no, you need further treatment and you should have been <laughs> you should have been going through this treatment process long before now. Again, the blame was placed on me, even though I was essentially like a child and completely unaware of, of what that treatment process was going to look like for me. I was told that my cancer was extensive. The surgeon that I had seen was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. 
My surgeon was not an oncologist. My surgeon was an ENT doctor. So he was ill-equipped to, to deal with, with, with more extensive forms of thyroid cancer. And I don't know if that was like part of why he didn't communicate with me, but I didn't receive any communication regarding just how extensive my cancer was at this point. My cancer had spread to lymph nodes in my neck. I was at that point, after I finally got in contact with someone who knew what was going on, I was referred to a specialist who dealt with thyroid cancer like an endocrinologist slash oncologist. And I had scans done. I had an ultrasound done on my neck. I had a chest CT done. I had a full body. I believe it was a PET scan. It was discovered at this point that my cancer had not only spread to my lymph nodes, but it had spread to my lungs as well. Um, I had multiple, it's, it's described in my chart as innumerable nodules which I hate that language. I hate, like, just count them. You, I know you can count them. So just count them, but they don't. They call it innumerable nodules. I just know that both of my, my lungs are full of nodules, too many for the hospital staff to count. And so at that point, I was put into more of a, a much more aggressive treatment process. Um, I was scheduled for another surgery to remove lymph nodes in my neck. I had a left neck dissection it's what it's called. I have a big scar running from the bottom of my ear down to the middle of my neck. Um, and during that surgery, I had 60 lymph nodes removed. In order to address the cancer in my lungs, I was given my first dose of radioactive iodine, a dose that should have been administered almost a year before, but wasn't. Um, I was administered 350 millicuries of radioactive iodine, which is a very large dose compared to what is typical for a thyroid cancer treatment. Most thyroid cancer treatments are almost not even necessary. They're just kind of administered just to be sure that everything is taken care of in the body. Cancer-wise, usually it's between like 60 and 90 millicuries. I was given 350 millicuries, which is not something that the human body should go through. I was isolated in a hospital isolation room. And as I say that, I'm acknowledging just how carceral that sounds, but I was held in an isolation room in the hospital for, I believe it was four, maybe five days, all by myself, because I was literally radioactive. I couldn't be around other people. The radioactive iodine is an effective treatment for thyroid cancer. It's also horrible for your body. So the thyroid cells in your body, the cancerous thyroid cells in your body, uptake iodine. So by administering radioactive iodine, you're ensuring that those cancer cells are taking up radioactive iodine isotopes. Ideally, that ensures cell death for those cancer cells. At the same time, iodine also likes to concentrate in your salivary glands. It likes to hang out in your tear ducts. It likes to hang out in your mucous membranes. So while it is a targeted therapy, it also is incredibly traumatizing for the entire body. I had severe swelling throughout my entire body for months. I had absolutely no sense of taste for about eight months following my treatment. My tear ducts were completely scarred shut. My tears weren't able to drain out of my eyes. And none of these side effects were really seriously mentioned to me prior to treatment. It was kind of presented as like, this happens sometimes. And again, a typical treatment is less than 100 millicuries. I was given 350, but they didn't really adapt their their guidance regarding side effects for a massive dose like that. 
They still insisted that I probably wouldn't see these side effects. And I absolutely did. So I went through that treatment process. I did see a lot of uptake in my lungs. Um, a lot of the radioactive iodine went where it needed to go. That was good. But it didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't, I didn't see the cell death that's often seen with a radioactive iodine treatment. I saw a lot of uptake in my lungs, but those nodules are still there to this day. But following that treatment, there was no change in size. There was no elimination of nodules. And so I was just told to wait and see. I think that was seven years ago, that first dose of radioactive iodine. About four years ago, I was given a second dose, something that I really wanted to avoid at all costs because of just how awful and traumatizing that first dose was. But it was really presented to me as, as my only option. And, and at this point, at the age of, that was, I was 22 at the time, I still had more trust in the healthcare system and the medical industrial complex than, than I do now, for sure. I didn't understand the problems of a profit-oriented healthcare system. I didn't understand that there were alternatives. I didn't understand any of it. I just, I, and, and that's the case with most of the systems that we operate within, especially in the Imperial Corps. We, we are really taught to believe that the systems that we operate in are the, the only way, the correct way. There are no alternatives. If there are alternatives, they are like inherently evil and must be combated. So I, I, at this point, I still hadn't really considered that maybe these doctors didn't actually know what was best for me. So I went through a second treatment, and it was a smaller dose. It was still larger than the average dose that's typically administered. I think it was, I believe it was 180 millicuries, so just over twice what is typically administered for thyroid cancer patients. I did a lot of research leading up to this treatment, because at this point, even though I still had trust in the healthcare system, I also was beginning to understand that I needed to do my own research. And I was beginning to understand that I wasn't going to receive an adequate amount of guidance from my doctors. So I knew I knew to expect dry mouth. I knew to expect issues with my mucous membranes. And so I did a lot of research regarding how to avoid those, those side effects. And I ended up finding this, <laughs> this plant. It's a plant-based drug. It is, it is manufactured on, on like an industrial scale, but it's, it's manufactured from a compound that comes from this plant that grows in Brazil. It's very interesting. It's called pilocarpine. And it, it, what it is, it is, is it encourages like salivary production and encourages sweat production and increases salivary production. And this is something that none of my doctors had ever mentioned to me. And so I decided I'm going to try, like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try and take this with my radioactive iodine treatment and see if I can, like, flush out my salivary glands while I'm going through this radioactive iodine process. And I presented this idea to my doctor and he was just like, that's a great idea. I've never heard of that. This is his job. At this point, I was working with a specialist who is world renowned regarding thyroid cancer because my, my case was so severe and so unique that I needed to see someone who dedicated their entire life to treating thyroid cancer. And I think this is so illustrative 
of how the medical industrial complex dehumanizes patients and prioritizes traditional Western science-oriented methods of treatment. Doctors dehumanize their patients. Doctors help to maintain a system that alienates patients from their own bodies and their own treatment processes. And so when I presented this, this potential solution to my doctor, he had never heard of it. Even though I'm, I'm absolutely certain he has had countless patients throughout his entire career who struggled with those same side effects, he was unaware of a solution that I was able to find by, like, Googling it. I did, like, three days of research, and I found it. So he prescribed me this medication called pilocarpine, and it worked. Following my second dose of radioactive iodine, I did not experience any symptoms of dry mouth because I was absolutely correct. And what I foresaw would be the outcome of taking a pill that would increase salary production while I was also being given radioactive iodine that I knew would concentrate in my salivary glands. And so now, the hospital where I was given that treatment, they routinely use pilocarpine in their treatment processes. I regularly recommend it to other cancer patients who are going through radiation treatments. While it doesn't work all the time, it is effective, I'd say, in like 50% or more of the people that I recommended it to. And I think that is significant. I know two other friends who, who are dealing with cancer who have gone through radiation treatment processes and they received the same response from their doctors um, when, they, when they asked about this prescription. And upon being granted that prescription and upon seeing the positive results of the prescription, the hospital staff incorporated it into their treatment regimen. I know of three hospitals across the country where this, where this treatment is now being used. And I am going to take credit for it because the doctors aren't doing anything. And I, I found this answer out <laughs> and it's being utilized widely at this point. And I'm going to keep recommending it. And I encourage anyone who knows someone who's struggling with cancer and is facing radiation treatments and is worried about the side effects to one, do their own research and two, to consider using pilocarpine to avoid those symptoms of dry mouth. So that is my history with cancer. Right now, after that second dose of radioactive iodine, I'm in a still in the wait and see stage. I've I've come to realize that my entire life at this point is probably going to be a wait and see kind of situation. I guess that's the case with just about all of us, but uh, not all of us have cancer. I still have what is described as innumerable nodules in my lungs. I haven't seen any growth in those nodules in the past three years since that second dose of radioactive iodine. So we're just going to continue to monitor. That's what is what I'm told. And at this point, they don't want to give me more radioactive iodine because, like I said, it's terrible for your body. And once you get to a certain point, you are beginning to dramatically increase your risk of secondary cancers later in life. Something that wasn't communicated to me prior to my first dose of radioactive iodine, but was communicated to me prior to my second dose. Your risk increases even more dramatically if you are given a dose of radioactive iodine when you're very young. I was 19 when I was given my first dose of radioactive iodine. I was 22 when I was given my second dose of radioactive iodine. So my cancer risk, my risk for secondary cancer has been dramatically increased. And I firmly believe that that wasn't effectively communicated to me during the treatment process. 
But I think it's important, now that I've shared all of that, to talk about why cancer happens. I think many people who hear this story probably find themselves wondering why did this person at the age of 18 have extensive cancer that had spread throughout their entire body? And I think that's a great question. And it's a question that my doctors didn't openly consider, not something my doctors discussed with me. I found out literally two months ago. I was reading a book called A New Outlook on Health. It was written by a it was written by a collective, but it's been reprinted by Foreign Language Press, and I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to learn more about like the history of the healthcare system in this country and the history of healthcare as a whole. But I found out through that book that the World Health Organization has stated that between 70 and 90% of cancer cases are caused by environmental agents, such as industrial chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, etc. 70 to 90%. So cancer doesn't just happen. If it does happen, if it does just happen naturally, it's going to happen later in life. Cancer that happens early in life is almost always, and I, I can't say always because that's not scientific, but almost always caused by environmental agents. And so upon learning that, I began to think back about potential environmental agents that I had been exposed to during my childhood. And this is something that I had considered in the past. Like, I did think it was weird that I had such a severe case of cancer at the age of 18, and I had, like, loosely investigated my past regarding, like, potential carcinogens. But once I read that statistic, I realized that it was almost absolutely caused by an outside environmental agent. And I believe I know what it was. So when I was 14 years old, I started my first job. I lived in northeastern Colorado, which is really like corn country. Lots of beef production up there, lots of corn production, and it's all monoculture. Anyone who has flown over the Midwest has seen these fields. Anyone who lives there knows what I'm describing. It's just mass, massive expanses of corn, maybe soybeans, maybe wheat but it's all massive fields of just one crop. All of these crops in these massive monoculture operations are grown with conventional methods, um, profit-oriented methods. All of these methods involve the incorporation of conventional pesticides, herbicides, etc. My first job, at the age of 14, I was, I was 14 years old. I was paid $7 an hour. My first job was with Pioneer Hybrid, they are a GMO seed production company. Um, they are now a subsidiary of Dow DuPont, which I'm sure many people have heard of. Dow developed Agent Orange during the Vietnam War and played a direct role in the extermination campaign in Vietnam. And Pioneer utilized glyphosate and pesticides on their cornfields. They continue to do that to this day because glyphosate is still widely used in the United States, despite there being over 40,000 cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma directly linked to handling glyphosate, also known as Roundup, just to call it by its common name. I'm sure many people have heard of Roundup. So I was 14 years old, working full-time. It was a summer job, but I was working full-time in cornfields that were routinely treated with glyphosate and pesticides. 
my job was to go out and they were they were developing herbicide resistant strains of corn and so they were routinely applying herbicides to this field because they were trying to produce an herbicide resistant strain and what we were doing was every single plant was kind of isolated from the other plants in the field i had to put a bag on top of the tassel of the corn in the morning which is where the the pollen is produced and then in the afternoon i would take the bag off the top of the corn and put it down on an ear of corn on that same corn plant so every single corn plant in this field was self-pollinating with my help so i had to put my hands on countless countless corn plants that were treated with glyphosate and pesticides and then i would go on my lunch break i don't remember washing my hands because i was just touching corn i was 14 years old corn's a vegetable it's like a plant it's not dirty you know so i would just go directly to my peanut butter and jelly sandwich put my hands all over it and eat that so that's my belief is that my exposure to conventional herbicides and pesticides utilized by conventional agricultural corporations in the united states um directly led to my cancer diagnosis and and directly led to just how extensive my cancer was throughout my body i think i likely had cancer by the time i was 15 but that i didn't find out about it until i was 17 or 18 once it became physically uncomfortable for me and i think that that is the reality for a lot of people who who have cancer is they don't catch it when they first get it they catch it when it becomes uncomfortable and that's a, a very very unfortunate reality it's also a problem within the medical industrial complex when you're profit oriented and not people oriented you're not screening for cancer you're not treating cancer like the public health problem that it is and again none of the doctors that i ever saw spoke about cancer as a public health issue cancer is probably the most pressing public health issue that we are facing not just in the united states but globally and it is directly caused by industrial chemicals utilized by major corporations mostly based in the imperial core that realization played a major role in in my radicalization even though it was one that i made more solidly pretty recently i think it has really confirmed for me just how sinister and evil so many of the systems are that we have to operate like these are our food product this is where our food comes from and food production in the united states gave me cancer i think my realization of where my cancer came from in combination with the experience that i've had with the medical industrial complex in the united states both of those things together have absolutely radicalized me. I think being being chronically ill and being made to operate within a healthcare system that is isolating and dehumanizing and carceral and completely void of care and most of all profit oriented has made me realize just how broken the systems are in this country. So once I became a chronically ill person. Once I was diagnosed with cancer, I immediately became aware of some of the more on the surface issues of the healthcare industry in this country, mostly being like the issue of cost, the issue of just like the level of dehumanization that most patients experience. And so I was 18 at the time. Pretty sure that was around the time that Bernie became 
a candidate for for the presidency in 2016. And at this point, I didn't I didn't know of any other alternatives to to the two party system that that we are all told is the only option that we have. So Bernie Sanders became kind of like I became very interested in his campaign. He was running on Medicare for all. I at the time understood that the cost issue of of medical access in this country was like one of the most pressing issues in my mind facing all of us. I, I thought that that was like something like once we got Medicare for all, in my mind, all the problems would be solved, you know. And so I started campaigning for for Bernie Sanders. And during that process, I think that was kind of my first step. I was a democratic socialist for maybe like a year. And what made me move beyond that was developing an understanding of imperialism and colonialism. Once I began to understand that the imperial core of the United States and and other imperial countries are maintained and sustained on the backs of the global south, that made me realize that Medicare for all and other social programs would not should not, can't, absolutely cannot be the end goal. One question that I began to ask myself is what is universal health care? What is universal health care as long as the blockade on Cuba restricts the import of medical supplies that ensure people in Cuba have access to health care? What is universal health care as long as Palestinians and Gaza have to sign up for a wait list to access health care outside of the Gaza Strip. Most of them at this point, I believe, are denied. Cancer patients die in Gaza because they're waiting to be approved to access health care in Israel. If I were born in Gaza, I would be dead. What is universal health care as long as between 30 and 40,000 Venezuelans die every year as a direct result of sanctions in Venezuela because they cannot access the health care that they need to treat the illnesses that they're dealing with? And once I began to make those realizations, I came to the conclusion that anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism must be the priority. I think fighting for affordable health care, I think fighting for Medicare for all and social programs like that is valuable. I think that there would be a material benefit for the working class and the imperial core if we were to establish those types of programs. But on the backs of who? I think it's absolutely critical that at the same time we maintain an anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist line regarding social programs in the United States. We need to, it can't be isolated to just the imperial core. And if it is, then we're not, it's not a worthy struggle. So I've been reading this book called Kindling, Writings on the Body by Aurora Levins Morales. Aurora Levins Morales is a Puerto Rican Jewish woman who has been dealing with chronic illness for most of her life. She's a radical feminist and I don't think she calls herself a communist, but like I'm getting some communist vibes for sure. I just wanted to read a poem from her. The poem is called Patience. Um, It's pretty quick. I just wanted to share this. Why do they call us the patient? We are not patient. We endure. 
The anxious tedium of public hospital waiting rooms because waiting is the punishment of the poor. Interminable buses to inconvenient places where we count up our cash, calculating whether we can take a cab home instead of riding our exhaustion. The angry contempt of specialists, taught to believe any pain they cannot explain, is insubordinate, deliberate, offensive. We are not patient. We are denied. Not medically necessary, they say. Not proven. Feel free to appeal. We are experts at appealing. So we begin again, gathering documents, faxing releases, collecting letters and signatures, giving our numbers all our numbers, to dozens of indifferent, underpaid clerks, stacking up evidence for the hearing where we will declare as civilly as we can to the affronted panels that it is necessary that we breathe, sleep, digest, be eased of pain, have medicines and therapies and machines, and that we not be required to beg. While I am waiting, I am using my pen, steadily altering words. Where the card says medically indigent, I cross it out and write indignant. Where my records say chemically sensitive, I write chemically assaulted, chemically wounded, chemically outraged. On the form listing risk factors for cancer, I write in my candidates. Agribusiness, air refresheners, dry cleaning, river water, farm life, bathing, drinking, eating, vinyl, cosmetics, plastic, greed, I am making an intricate graffiti poem out of mountains of unnecessary paperwork. Where the doctor has written disheveled, I write untamed. Where it says refuse treatment, I write refuse to be lied to. Where it says safe, side effects minimal, I say prove it. What do you mean minimal? What do you mean side? I write unmarketed effects unmentionable. Where it asks authorization, I write inherent authorized from birth. Are you the patient, she asks, ready to transfer my call. I say only with my own sweet, brave body. I say, not today, no. I have no patience left. I am the person who is healing, I say, in spite of everything. I will have to put you on hold, she says. Yes, hold me, I say. That would be good.